have you guys ever had um, gotten fraudulent charges on your credit card before? Anyone here have that happen to you? It happened to my wife a few months ago. This was interesting because they actually made a duplicate copy of the credit card. They actually charged with this card and she had it in her possession. And the interesting thing is they charged like McDonald's $80. Now, that to me would have been a red flag right there that there was a problem, right? But uh, they also charged Home Depot. They charged home, uh, like uh, auto parts to hundreds in each place. I mean, it came to like a couple thousand dollars. And the credit card company called her up and she, you know, they realized that it was fraud. So they said, okay, you don't have to pay these charges. So that's pretty awesome, you know. And I always thought when they did that, that the credit card company was just being gracious and they absorbed the cost, right? But that's not true. Did you know that it's actually the vendor who doesn't get paid? So McDonald's didn't get their 80 bucks. And all these other places didn't get the money that was supposed to go to them. The burden of the responsibility of making sure it's an accurate charge is on the responsibility of the vendor, whoever takes the charge. Now, I have a friend, and he has a company. His name is John, and uh, he suffered credit card fraud, too. Now, in the company that he has, to get a charge of like twenty or $30,000 or a sale that large is not out of the ordinary. So he gets a call from California, this guy, and he wants to buy $4,000 worth of parts, but he wants it overnight. Well, he's a first-time, uh, you know, sale, so they don't just, like put them on credit or anything like that. No, they either get wired money to them or they take a credit card. So he takes the guy's credit card. And they've never had fraud before. So he goes ahead and processes it. They send it. It goes overnight. Well, about a week later, the same guy calls up and he does another charge, about $5,000. And so it seemed to work last time. They go ahead, charge the card, send it. Well, shortly after that, they get a call from the credit card company and say, I'm sorry, but these credit card charges are no good. You're not going to get paid. He was out like $9,000. Man, that was the first time he realized, I've got to get more information if someone's going to charge a card. Now, here's what happened only a few days after that. Another person called from California. His name was Steve Taylor. And this guy calls up and orders an order about $4,000. And he wants it overnight. In fact, he said the guy that gypped him, he was the one who recommended the company. So he's like, man, what do I do here? You know, so he's like, I'm going to get more information. I'm going to make sure I do my due diligence so we don't get ripped off. So he gets the guy's information. He gets his business address. He gets phone numbers. He gets all this stuff. Okay. now it's a four thousand dollar sale. He really wants it. How many of you guys would go ahead, charge the card and do the sale, process the sale? What do you guys hear this before or something? All right. How many of you would not do it? Okay, a few of you. How many of you want more information? More information. Okay, good, good. Well, that's what John wanted. He goes, I want more information. So could you email me or fax me a photocopy of your ID? And so Steve Taylor goes ahead and does it. And this is what he sent. It's right here on the screen. There is the copy, the exact copy of his passport with Steve Taylor on it. And so... John is now all excited. He goes to his account and he says, look, I even have a photo ID. So let's go process this charge. And the accountant goes, well, hold on a minute. That picture looks an awful like a lot like Sting from the police. (laughs) So the accountant goes online and he Googles it. And this is the first picture that popped up right here on the middle screen. It's the exact same picture that the guy put on his passport. 
I mean, I would have taken one of these other guys that I don't even know, right? And, and put it on there. Okay, that's cool with this. <laughs> I mean, these guys, like, this guy took an exact picture of Sting, put it on the passport, and sent it in. Now, of course, he didn't do the charge, right? And it's times like that, like this, that happened in our lives that we wish we knew all the facts. Because if we had all the real information, especially if John did, then he would know whether to trust Steve or not. You know, a full understanding of our situation always builds trust in life. Uh, we put our trust in things based on what we know and understand, right? That's why we get, like, recommendations for contractors and plumbers and electricians. We check credit card scores on potential renters. We do background checks or we call professionals. And we're trying to gather as much information so we can decide where to put our trust. It's the same way when it comes to those who we choose to follow. It's probably me, maybe even more important then, right? I mean, we want to know what their motives are, the type of person they are. Will they make decisions that are consistent with the way I would make decisions? And all these things are important if we're going to give our allegiance to someone. When it comes to God, it's really no different. You know, people are trying to size up God to see if he's worth following. I mean, we all of us have done it at one point in our lives. Atheists do it. People from other religions do it. They decide, which God am I going to follow? And here's the idea that we're going to talk about today. Will you follow God? even if you don't understand what he's doing. When you don't have all the facts, when what he's doing doesn't seem to be the way you would do it, when things don't seem to line up or he doesn't do what you want him to do, will you follow him no matter what? You see, we're in the book of Romans, chapter 9, if you want to get ahead and turn there, in a series called Inside Out. And this, is, uh, this book of Romans, in chapter 8, Paul's talking about the assurance of salvation that all these people have. Pastor Mark did a great job of teaching on it last week. All these people are entering into this assurance of salvation, and then he looks on at the people of Israel, and it's not happening there. And Paul says, my heart is sad, my heart is breaking for the people of Israel, because they are missing out on this assurance. You see, they had this information gap that caused a stumbling block for them. Let's read about it in verse 1. It says, I tell you, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from the Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. Amen. You see, the first thing that I'd like you guys to take note of in your outline is this. There are things we know about God. Pretty simple. There are things that we know about God. You see, Paul goes through this as he's lamenting that Israel hasn't made it hasn't been entered into this salvation. And he lists all the knowledge that they had about God. All these things. He talks about the adoption. They were the chosen people that God used to reveal himself to the world. They had the glory of God in their presence as they wandered through the desert. During the day, it was a cloud. By day and at night, a pillar of fire. And even this smoke, this cloud descended upon the tabernacle when God would rest there. I mean, they saw his very glory. They gave him the covenants to, that they would prosper. 
the law, God's standard of perfection. They had the service of God. They were the only ones who were able to sacrifice. You had to go there if you wanted to give sacrifice to God and serve Him. They had the promises of the inheritance of the land. They had the patriarchs, their forefathers, who were uh, before them. They had all this as a testimony. And God chose this one nation to make Himself known to the world. God revealed who He was and His plan for mankind. I mean, He used these giant, these crazy, mighty miracles to prove that He was working through Israel. In fact, by the time they got to the, land, the promised land, which was 40 years later, this girl Rahab says to him, we've heard of all the amazing things that God has done. Listen to what it says in Psalm 98. It says, the Lord has made note his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And until that time, until today... We know all the stories. We know that God has been revealed. And not only that, though, we see that history backs it up. We see that the people that are mentioned in the Bible actually existed. We see the cultures were there, that cities are where they were supposed to be. And events that took place, there's evidence of them taking place, and even the prophecies that have come true. But not only that, not only all of this, but the Messiah came through the line of Israel. God incarnate, God himself came down to reveal who he was to mankind. Jesus was to show us who the Father was and how we were to get to the Father. Listen to what it says in Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Through God, through Jesus, and through the people of Israel, and all these things, God was revealing who he was. And from these things, we can know his character and what he's like, what he wants from us and for us, how he wants to be worshipped, his great love for us. All this understanding came through the nation of Israel, and yet there was one problem. They began to think they knew everything about God. They began to think that God was like them. He thought like them. Listen to what it says in verse 6 and nine, in chapter 9. It says this, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed for this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau, I have hated. You see, God does things in ways man wouldn't do it. With Abraham, he gave him this impossible promise. But you see, man's way was Abraham said, listen, I've got to make sure it happens, so I'm going to take care of it in my way. And he sleeps with the handmaiden. 
God says, no, that's not the way I do it. I'm going to perform a miracle through your own wife and produce a son. And that's where the promise comes. That's not how man does it, but that's how God does it. Because God wants to make clear who is actually doing the work. And then he talks about Isaac and these twins with Rebekah. In man's way is normally the firstborn is the one who inherits everything. Back then, even today, you know, they are the ones who are the most adored. And so they were the ones who were to get the inheritance. But God said, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. That's not the way I'm going to do it. That's man's way. But the way I'm going to do it is the older shall serve the younger. God is showing that his ways are not man's ways. But let's read a little further. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he had mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing being uh, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called? Not only the, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Man, after reading this, there's one thing that's for sure, and it's in your outline. There are things I will never know about God. There are things I'll never know about God. God starts to blow our mind. I mean, did he really just say that he hated Esau? Right? We just read it. He hated Esau. God, you're a God of love. You love everyone. How can you hate him? How can you hate Esau? And our minds begin to say, do I understand God then? Is, is God a God of love or can he hate? I mean, I didn't think he could hate. You know, but then we look on when, you know, Jesus said, unless you hate your wife or your husband, your mother or your father, your brothers and sisters, then you can't follow me. You're not fit to follow me. Jesus, really, I have to hate them? Yet in other areas of the scriptures, it tells us that we need to love our wives. So do you just mean that I just don't like them as much as I love you? I like them less. Is that what you mean? Or do you really hate him? But not only that, he, he goes on further and he gives another example that challenges this, this, this example of Israel and the Pharaoh. Listen, the verse there that he uses is, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. He says this to Moses at an interesting time in the history of Israel. See, Israel had just escaped, if you will, from Egypt. And they made it through the Red Sea, all these amazing miracles, all these plagues on Egypt. I mean, who else is God, right? And they take him, he goes out a couple days into the desert, they get to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain to talk to God. And while he's up there, he's getting the Ten Commandments, and he's getting all the other commandments and laws, and he's getting the plans for the tabernacle, and it's just taken forever. And so the, Israel's down at the bottom, like, what is going on? And so they go, forget him, he's gone. And so they turn to Aaron, his brother, who is also the priest, and he says, can you make us a god to worship? And so Aaron makes this golden calf, and there they are worshiping a calf. And Moses comes down from the mountain, and he's like pulling his hair out. Did you guys see what God has done in your midst? Have you seen all this? And now look at what you're doing. And he smashes the tablets. 
I mean, how could this be? And yet, here is Israel worshipping a calf in the desert, which was the exact same thing that the Egyptians were doing in Egypt. Because the God that they were worshipping here was the same God that they were worshipping in Egypt. So here you have Israel worshipping a calf and another God. They're sinning. And here's Egypt sinning and worshipping another calf or another God. And here God says, I'll have mercy over here, but here I'm going to harden. What? God, they're both doing the same thing. Well, what is up? I don't get you, God. I don't understand you. What, are you. what are you talking about? They're both sinning, but you're going to harden Pharaoh? Let me say, well, you know what? It says that seven times Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and seven times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So maybe, maybe Pharaoh was just hardened toward God. He had already made up his mind. He would already decided, and then God, what he did was kind of froze him like a statue. Okay, I didn't harden you more against me, or I didn't make you hard against me, but I just hardened you where you were at. Okay, maybe. Maybe, I guess. And you know what? If these things aren't confusing enough, then he goes on to talk about this illustration about the potter and the clay. And he says, listen, what I make from the same lump of clay, I make two different things. One that's a vessel of honor and one of dishonor. Same thing. You're both sinners. You're all bad, but one I'm going to use for honor, one I'm going to use for dishonor. It's like... Lord, I don't even get it. You see, he's the creator. The creator can decide whatever he wants to do. And God is demonstrating his sovereignty. Sovereignty. That means supreme, independent authority. That's what sovereignty means. And God's saying, listen, I am sovereign. And we enter this area of scripture where people have debated for years about this. They debated for years about what is, is God then predestining certain people to be saved and others he's just not? And so if you're either predestined and you make it, or you're not. And then others would say, you know what? Well, everyone should have a choice. Don't they have a choice? I mean, if we were to jump to the very last verse, it says, and, whoso, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever. So each of us has that chance, right? I mean, come on. I mean, these two doctrines are two things that people debated. One's called Calvinism. Calvinism says that people are predestined and they have no choice. The other is called Arminianism. Or we could call it the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. That man has a free will to choose each time. Because I get to choose. That means I get to decide. Man, I... Is, what's up with that, right? And you guys are going like, yeah. You're looking up at the stage. What's the right thing? Which is the right one? They're both right. They're both right. You see, the problem comes when we try to reconcile them or try to make up for them or try to put them together in some way that makes sense. You see, all we can do is take what God, the information that he's given us, even if it doesn't make sense in our own minds, but to say, yes, I believe it. Some people are predestined and some people have free will. Well, why do they have free will? Because it's our choice. God gives us a choice to accept him. But some people are predestined. Are they some people or everyone? Those that will choose him are predestined. Why? Because free will, we're probably going to blow it, aren't we? We're going to blow it. If God doesn't do it for us, we're going to mess it up because this guy over here is trying to do it constantly in his strength is going to blow it. So God says, listen, I'm going to make sure you make it. I mean, in chapter 8, two weeks ago, we, taught, we read the verse that says, those he foreknew, those he predestined to become children of God. And to be transformed into his image. He says these things. Like, God, I don't understand you. I can't fully understand what it means. I, I don't understand you. There are things I just don't know. I mean, think about this for a minute. Jacob and Esau, right? They're in their mother's womb. You guys know Pastor Mark had a baby like uh, 
about a month ago, I guess. I don't know, a few weeks back. And so before they were going to, the date was coming, the baby was flipped upside down or whatever. So they said, you've got to have a C-section. But in the last day or two, it moved so she could have a natural birth. And I'm thinking, God, you've got two people inside of a womb right there within inches of each other. And you want one to be the, dom- the inheritor. Why don't you just give Jacob an extra push so that he makes it out first, right? Right? I mean, come on, it was that easy. All you do is a little nudge and he would have come out first. And then everything would have been set. Why did you do it that way? Why? You know, there are things that we're never going to know about God. This is what it says in Isaiah 55. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, your thoughts. God's like, I'm way up here, way up above the heavens, and you're way down there. In fact, lower than that. That's how low you are, and that's the big gap that we have. I mean, do you guys know what it really means to love unconditionally? I mean, we accept that thing, but you know what? Tolerating someone is not loving them unconditionally. Right? Oh, I tolerate them. I'm not mean to them. I'm not bad. But is that really loving them unconditionally? I don't know if I know that. I know I don't know what it means to love unconditionally. Do you know what it's like to have always existed? What happened before God created? Where was he created everything? What was he doing? What was it like? I have no idea. Do you know what it's like to be everywhere at once? You know, when I pray to God and I think, man, I got his ear 24-7, right? Anytime I call, God's there. He's listening to me. He's attentive to me. He's hearing everything. And he is ministering to me in some way. And I think I got that. But here's the thing. So do you, right? So do you. Anytime you call on him, anytime you pray to him, you're like, he's listening to me. Well, if every one of us in this room are praying to him at the same time, how does he have, why do we have his undivided attention? How do we have his ear so intimately? It can't be. I can't understand that. I have no idea. There's just some things that we can't understand about God. But here's the third point. Fill it out in your outline, please. It says this. I don't have to understand everything God is doing to let him lead me. I don't have to know it. I don't have to under, understand everything he's doing to let him lead me. You know, Israel got to a point where they thought their understanding was right. They thought that only the people of Israel would be saved. Let's read in verse 25. Check it out. It says, As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who are not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. And he's talking about the Gentiles. These people that I didn't call, I'm going to call. And then he goes on in Isaiah and he says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. I think this is really interesting. God just flips it all again right there. It's like, there's, you guys aren't, there's some people out there, they're not even called, they have no hope, there's nothing right now, but I'm going to call all of these people, this mass, enormous amount of people to come to me. And then he says, you Israel, you're like the sand of the sea, the stars of the sky, that's how many, you can't even count them. But you know what's going to make it? A little seed. A little remnant. It's like, why, God, why are you doing things these ways? But he goes on, what shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay, a Zion, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You see, Israel is not entering in. And this whole thing, Paul's lamenting, he says they're not entering in because they don't have the right understanding. You see, they thought that only people of Israel would be saved. If you were a son of Abraham, then you would be saved and everybody else was not to be saved. And they come to this guy, John the Baptist, one day while he's out there in the rivers to, to see what's going on. And John warns them, listen to what he says. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You see, they couldn't see that true Israel was not about the fleshly line of Abraham. True Israel is about the believing faith of Abraham. And so they were just missing it. And since they didn't understand what God was doing, they didn't seem to make sense. They just didn't believe him. And so they miss out and they stumble on this rock. It says they stumble because they have a preconceived notion of what God is doing. You know, it's a subtle thing that happens when God's way doesn't fit into our equation, right? We just say, we put ourselves in the place of God. We reject who He is. I mean, think about it. We have this box that we put things in. This is my God box, and this is who God is. But hold on. Whoa, whoa, this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit into my box. So instead of making my box different so it could encompass who God is, we take that and we throw it away. It doesn't fit. Okay, we just we take, pick and choose what we want. You know, that happens. I hear this statement a lot. and You guys probably hear it too. It says, you know, I wouldn't believe in a God who would fill in the blank, right? Would do what? He wouldn't do something the way we would do it? He would think differently than the way you think? We are like a piece of clay trying to tell the potter what he looks like. Can God's sense of justice, God's sense of love be more developed than yours? And could your way be flawed? I don't know how God who loves people could do this. I don't know how a God of justice could allow this. Could he be right? Could he know something that you don't know? God's ways are so much higher than ours. Listen, if we would say to ourselves, God wouldn't think that way or do that because I wouldn't, what we are doing is putting God's action in submission to our own reasoning. We put God on trial. God, I'm going to judge you to see if you compare to my own understanding. And that's where the problem lies. When we try to ascribe our point of view on something that is really completely beyond our understanding. God is way up here. God created you and me. We have no idea what it's like to be God. You know, there was this guy named Job in the Bible. And in one day, Job loses everything. God takes away his family, his house, his fields, his cattle, his sheep. His sons and daughters. He takes all that away. And here he is going, what are you doing, God? You can only imagine. God, was I bad to you? In fact, God was bragging about Job, how he's like the best guy on the earth to Satan. That that's how good Job is. So like, God, did I deserve this? Why are you doing this? 
And yet God, Job didn't waver because his understanding didn't match up with what he thought about God. Listen to what it says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. He still worshipped God as who God was, no matter what. Do you guys have any friends that, like, just have authority issues? Anybody here? I have a friend uh, from college that I know, and he comes and he visits once in a while. And this guy, he, he's come to Florida and he's visited me. And he's just an interesting guy. He's kind of retro. And I, I wouldn't call him retro, but like he'll wear shorts, you know, that are like way up here above the knees and that come up to your belly button. But instead of wearing like the shirt over the shorts, he tucks them in, you know, and it's like, hey, grandpa, can you change a little bit? Like you, you got to work on that a little bit. And then he tells like these these stupid jokes that are offensive and just bad. And I'm like thinking, dude, you are never going to get a woman in your life, you know? So he's visiting and my wife and I say, Look, can we give you like a little makeover? Can we give you a little couple pointers on yourself? And he's like, listen, I am not going to change for some woman. And I'm like, wow, you know? As Pastor Bob says, you know, like, dude, you're never going to know the touch of a woman like this. So this guy graduated from engineering school. And he gets a job with his family. And he gets in a big fight with his family because he doesn't want to do things the way they want to do things. So he has a huge falling out. Not only does he leave the company, but he doesn't talk to his parents and his sister for ages, for years. So he gets a job at NASA as an engineer. And there he gets fired. And he's like, oh, I don't know why. He's not doing stuff right, whatever. So then he, he changes his field. He goes to nuclear medicine. And now he's doing radiology and stuff. And he goes from hospital to hospital to hospital. And he keeps losing his job. And, he's, and I'm like, dude... There's one common factor here. It's you. Do you see what's going on? Like, come on, wake up, open your eyes. He's got this hard luck story. And I'm like, dude, your problem is that you cannot submit to authority. I started witnessing to him and started talking to him, thinking maybe God can help this guy, you know, because I can't. So I started talking about God and he has these, he won't believe the Bible, he won't believe all this stuff, but he believes some book that God, some guy wrote, some guy wrote that about, you know, we're all God, there is no hell, love, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, all right, let me ask you this. Let me just, let's just break this down. I said, what if God proved himself to you? What if God was, everything's gone. We, you know without a doubt that God created you, that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he has a plan for you, and now you're a stand before him. Would you bow down and worship him, I said. And he goes, well, I, I'd have to give him a, 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 I'd have to ask him some questions first. And no, I wouldn't. Ultimately, he said, no. I'm like, dude. This guy had a lordship issue. He was the lord of his life. And see, that's the thing that Israel had too. They had a lordship issue. They were the lord of their lives. You see, they'd been struggling all their life. In their culture, they spent their lives trying to understand the law. In fact, they wrote volumes about what the law means. They have the Mishnah and the Talmud that are huge compared to this. This is tiny. In fact, it was their, these oral tradition that they called that they actually held above, esteemed above the word of God at one point. They began, their God became their opinion about the law of God. That's what happened. And because their opinion about the law became their God, they couldn't see God. It blinded them. It blinded them to their truth, to his truth. And they couldn't understand grace because it was all about their God, their law, their way. And so they stumbled. And they missed out. Do you realize that most 
of the issues in your and my life boil down to this? Who's really the Lord of your life? That's what happens. A lot of times it's a lordship issue. When we're sitting on the throne of our lives, that's when we get into all sorts of trouble. Because we think we have the right answer. We think we know the right way. But when God, well, it doesn't line up. But, but, uh, so I don't know if I want to put him on the throne there. But that's usually what gets us into trouble. Let me finish the study with, tell, with telling you a couple things. What does it mean for God to be Lord of my life? What does it mean? It's in your outline. Number one, humble myself. Humble myself. Listen, humility is simply having a realistic view of who you are. Imagine tomorrow morning, I go to the office, and then Bob comes in like ten minutes later. And when he walks into his office, he sees me with my feet up on his desk, eating my breakfast with crumbs all over the place, right? He's going to be, what, what's up? You're not supposed to be here. Your place is in your office. This is my office, right? How many of you guys would walk into your boss's office and just sit down and start doing your work? Nobody, because you know your place isn't there. You know your place is in your office. It's having a realistic view of your place. This word humble comes from the word humus, a Latin word for soil, for dirt. It's saying you're here in the dirt, you're down here, that's what it's humble is, and I'm way up here so high above the heavens. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. And anything else, aside from recognizing that, is pride and arrogance in our life. You see, pride was the downfall of Satan. Satan was like down here. But he said, no, I want to be up here. This is where I want to be. This isn't, what, this isn't the way the scriptures describe him here. It says, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the throne of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. His pride was saying, even though I'm here, I have an unrealistic view of who I am and who I should be. I should be up here. I know your ways are up here, mine are down here, he says. But instead, I know what the best way is. That's where we fall into sometimes. You see, we need to realize and recognize in humility where our place is, but we also have to understand where his place is. So number one, I humble myself, but number two, I trust God. Trust God. I trust God. You see, I have to place my faith in Him. You know, we all experience difficult times in our lives, like the loss of a house, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one. And I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating, but that whenever a trial comes into our lives, it will cause us to do one of two things. You will either draw closer to God for support and for strength, or you're going to push away from God in anger and resentment. That's what happens when we get to a trial. We're either going to draw closer to him or we're going to draw away. And each time you're going to have the choice. You see, it's easy to trust when everything is making sense in our lives that God's in control. It's easy. Like, right? Things are going good. I just got a bonus. You know, my brand new car got washed. Whatever. I don't know. We're like all happy. It's easy to trust that. But when things go bad, when things are difficult, that's when it becomes hard to trust that God's in control. That God has the best in mind for us. When we don't understand it, why, Lord? Why is this happening? Those are the times that we need to trust. David says this of God, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Number one, we humble. 
humble myself, I trust God. And number three, I submit to God. Submit to God. I just got back from Boston with my wife. Every year I go to visit family there. And uh, I go around, I go to the 4th of July. And uh, I have an uncle and an aunt, my uncle Lee and my aunt Jean. Okay? But here's the thing. I've known them since I was about this big. And all I ever call them is uncle and auntie. I don't say Lee or Jean or Uncle Lee and Uncle Jean. In fact, I feel funny, even as an adult, I'm grown and married, calling them Uncle Lee or Uncle Jean, saying the first name. So all I ever do is call them Uncle and Auntie. Well, my friends and everybody think that's hilarious, you know? They're like, oh, Uncle and Auntie. And so they go to my house, and that's what they call them. They don't go Lee or Jean or Uncle Lee. They go, it's Uncle, hey, Auntie, hi, Uncle. They just, like, do it, right? But here's the thing. No matter how much they call him Uncle or her Auntie, they will, she will never be their Uncle or Aunt. And just because we call Jesus Lord doesn't make him our Lord. It's not by your mouth that you will prove that he's your Lord. It's by your submission that you prove he's Lord. Jesus said this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven. See, those are the ones, not the ones that just say it, but the ones that actually do it. He's talking about obedience. And there are things that God asks us where we are challenged, he asks us to do them, and we're challenged because we maybe don't understand why. And unless somebody can explain it to us, then we're really not going to do it. You ever been at that stage of your life somewhere? You know? What about tithing? It's a very important thing. You know, a lot of times we say, well, you know what? Unless you can tell me why God is doing it, and I have a good reason that he wants me to do it, then I'm not going to do it. How about obedience to our parents? Unless you can explain that to me, unless it makes sense to me, then I'm not going to do it. What about the sanctity of marriage and our relationships intimately outside of it? Well, God, unless you can explain why that's important to me, unless it makes sense, because culture doesn't seem to think that, then I'm not going to do it. You know, that's the reason I fell in love with my wife. We were in a small group together on, on a financial study, and... I remember we came to the part where he talked about tithing. And someone in the group said, no, no, I'm not going to tithe. I wouldn't, I'm not going to tithe. I don't care. And my wife said, well, I'm going to tithe because God said so. I was like, that, that's the woman for me. I'm like, a woman like that is not going to make any mistakes. I mean, she's going to follow after God. That's what I want. Listen, can you just be obedient because God says to can you just do it just because he says? Because he's Lord. And for no other reason, that's truly being in submission to God. When he just says, do it, and you say, yes, I'm going to do it. God being the Lord of your life means submitting him to no matter what. Whether it makes sense or not, whether I agree or not, or whether I like it or not. Here's the final point. At our very core, we have to answer this fundamental question. Who is sitting on the throne of my life? Is it me or is it God? Right now, today, who is sitting on the throne of your life? Is it you or is God sitting on it? If it's you, you're going to miss out on some amazing things. This example of Israel, they blew it huge and Paul's lamenting over it. Paul's like... So upset, he's like, I'd rather be in their place. That's how bad it is. Because they blew it. Because they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't trust God because they thought they knew better. Listen, if you let God on the throne of your life, then he's going to direct you. 
And he's going to take you places where he's got great things for you. Listen, I'm going to close. I'm going to read this verse and then we're done. But listen to it. It's in your outline. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you. And I want to recognize, Lord, that you're an amazing God, far beyond what we can ask or know or even conceive of. Lord, we're so small in your sight and that you've chosen to honor us by loving us. Lord, we're so grateful for that. Lord, may we in return learn to put you in the throne of our lives. May you be the Lord of our lives. And may you be Lord over all. Lord, I pray for everyone that came out today. I ask that you bless them. Lord, may you go with them this week and may you prosper them and may they be a light into the areas that they go. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.